Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good day. It's Monday. It's time for the Religious Studies Project, and today I am Dave McConaughey. As always, I am joined by my wonderful co-editor, co-manager, co-producer. Brianne Fallon. There we are. Hi, Brie. How hey. is, how's it going? How's it going in Australia? It, I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit, but it was 36 degrees Celsius today. and That sounds hot. That's really yeah, hot. Yeah, it's really hot and it's a little bit oppressive and, you know, it's it's just you can't escape it, but it's okay. I'm in the aircon, ready to record and looking like we have one from you this week. You, we do. In, you interviewed Catherine Stewart My name is um, on Who Are the Power Worshippers. I'm joined so by take it away. Stewart, a journalist who has written for the New York Times, the New Republic, Washington Post, and many other sources. She has a new book out called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, out on March 3rd. And I'm delighted to have her with me today. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So before we start talking about the many issues that are in your book, can you talk a little bit about what motivated you to write about this in this particular moment? I've been writing about the religious right as a political force for over a decade. I first became interested in the topic when I was living in Santa Barbara, California, and uh, an evangelical quote-unquote Bible study club called a Good News Club came to my daughter's public elementary school. Um, the book, uh, the club uh, claimed to be teaching um, Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint, but it turned out they were uh, inculcating children in on public school property into a deeply fundamentalist form of the evangelical Christian faith. And kids, I mean, they were targeting kids who were as young as five and six years old. We're talking elementary age children. Um, they were specifically targeting children in the earliest years of learning. The centerpiece of their program was a bird, oh, what they called a wordless book. It just had pictures and colors and shapes, and it was used to teach children who were too young to read. And the fact that this was happening in public schools, there are apparently thousands of good news clubs in public schools across the country, it kind of bumped up against everything I thought I knew about the separation of church and state. Um, Kids attending the clubs were encouraged to target other kids in public school for recruitment. And the problem that I saw with these good news clubs is they really confused little kids into thinking that their public schools endorsed a form of evangelical Christianity. Um, you know, little kids are so innocent. You know, they think it, if something's happening in public schools, it must be what their public schools want them to believe. Public schools have a cloak of authority in their minds and they can't make that distinction between what's happening in their public schools and, you know, something endorsed by their school. So um, they think if it's in the public school, it must be true. It's taught by adults in the school. And um, so I really kind of started this line of inquiry into, you know, who are the people behind the good news clubs and, what do they really believe? And more importantly, why are they so insistent on holding their clubs in public schools as opposed to in churches or in 
private homes or parks or any number of other places that were all free to practice our faith, if any, and um, published a book on the topic uh, about religion, uh, the religious right, and public education, their efforts to not only infiltrate public ed, but also to undermine it. I sort of uh, recognize that the movement has a longstanding hostility to public education, and a lot of the policies that they're promoting, such as defunding of public education through vouchers, uh, reflect that. And, you know, I realize the attack on public education is really just one part, one small part of a larger, uh, larger attack on uh, modern democracy itself. And so this continued. This was not a blip. This was not a moment that, that dissipated, that the energy from this movement actually built and gathered additional political and social force since the time that you published that. So I think for a lot of us, we have an impression of what changed. But for you, how would you describe what changed from the moment when you were writing The Good News Club to now, as you are set to release the power worshippers, what changed? I think I recognized when I was researching that first book that the movement um, achieved so many of its successes through the courts. And I recognized that activists were um, so focused on the courts, they through organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom or Liberty Council, um, other supportive organizations such as the Federalist Society and the like, they were really focused on not just placing um, justices who are favorable to their ideology on the courts, but also um, very carefully um, achieving their successes through the courts by picking the right cases um, over time, sort of uh, installing these novel legal building blocks that would help them achieve um, a, a judgment that would be really favorable to their ultimate aim, which is to degrade the separation of church and state, to degrade the principle of church-state separation, uh, and, and obtain a sort of a position of privilege uh, in the courts and in law. Right. In your book and in a lot of the related literature, and we can talk about how much related literature there is now because it is a thriving area of publication in this current political moment. One of the ways that that is described is the seven mountains. Can Can you describe a little bit, if you can, about the way in which the philosophy of understanding seven mountains or areas of emphasis relates to what you describe as kind of a concerted effort um, by these individuals to promote specific forms of strategies to undermine um, church-state separation. Yeah, that's such an interesting, this is such an interesting area. Um, as many of your listeners probably know, uh, in his 2008 book, which is titled Dominion, How Kingdom Action Can Change the World, C. Peter Wagner explains that God has commanded true Christians to gain control 
of the seven mountains or, or seven molders of culture and influence or the seven areas of civilization, including government, business, education, the media, arts and entertainment, family and religion. He said that apostles, he calls them apostles, have a responsibility for taking dominion over whatever molders of culture or subdivision God has placed them in, which he cast as taking dominion back from Satan. And although Wagner is not a household name outside of Christian national circles, his work is broadly influential within it. And I um, started, first became exposed to the philosophy of C. Peter Wagner when we moved to New York City and sent our children to a public school there and a, a sort of Seven Mountains-influenced church was operating rent-free, I might add, four times a week out of our public school. Um, and they would openly discuss the Seven Mountains of culture. And we had to, I, I attended the church multiple times, of course, because it was literally across the street from my house and my kids were both attending that school. They actually instructed congregants to pray over the pictures and names of our children. You know, the mm-hmm. public school asked us to, you know, make the to make the school a welcoming place for all kids. Would you know give our kids pictures to the you know school and write their names so that the kids would walk in and see their picture and sort of understand the have a sense of school community and and yet four days a week the the school is being turned over rent-free to a Seven Mountains church that's instructing its congregants to pray over their pictures and their names and then pray that Christians will, um, like themselves, um, will um, soon uh, overtake the Seven Mountains of culture. I found it astonishing at that time that here I was mandated by law to send my children to a local public school where their names and images will be bound up in the practices uh, and uh, of a, and and services of religion that believes that um, my children, my family, were all bound for hell. That just was kind of astonishing to me. But um, I discovered the influence of the Seven Mountains. Um, broadly throughout the movement as I was researching my book, The Power Worshippers, which is really about a range of initiatives um, by the religious right to um, take over uh, our government, uh, legal system, uh, and many areas of influence and to undermine uh, modern democracy. Now, I use the term Broadly, look, I use many terms when I describe the movement. I use terms like Christian right, religious right, dominionism at times where appropriate. Um, uh, But I often prefer the term religious nationalism when referring to the whole. And um, I'd love to tell you why. I think (laughs) when we think of the religious right, we're often thinking of a cultural movement or social movement that works from the bottom up, expressing Mm. the anxieties and reactions of a particular group in American society to changing social realities. But religious nationalism works from the top down. 
It actively shapes and manipulates its target population, and it often shifts its target. It's um, a political ideology. Uh, Christian nationalism is a political ideology. It says that what makes the United States distinctive, it's not our democratic system of government or our constitution or a long history of assimilating very diverse people in a pluralist society. Instead, it insists that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is bound up inextricably with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. It basically says, in essence, that the U.S. is founded on the Bible and can only succeed if it remains true to this alleged foundation. They're always warning us that, you know, America has strayed and this is really terrible. And Christian nationalism is also a device for mobilizing and often manipulating large segments of the population and for concentrating power into the hands of this new elite. So when Vladimir Putin in Russia or Viktor Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey bind themselves closely to religious conservatives in their countries to consolidate an authoritarian form of power, we understand this is a form of religious nationalism. And we're seeing this today with Trump's alliances with our with our own religious ultra conservatives. Right. I think that this is a point that's made especially well using sociological data by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry in oh, their yeah. new book. Their book is terrific. Taking America Back for God. And one of the things that that really struck me about the way that they're doing the analysis is that they can show using their social science methods that if we confine our view to evangelicals, or if we say simply conservative Christians, that part of the problem with that is that we are missing so many of the players that are participating in this. Have you found similar things as you've looked uh, and in your um, fieldwork in churches across the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, the movement that I'm describing and that they also describe includes many people who identify as evangelical, but importantly, it excludes many evangelicals too. As you know, mm-hmm. there's a real spectrum among uh, evangelicals and of evangelical thought. Um, many evangelicals reject the politics of division and conquest that the movement um, uh, 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 supports. And the movement also includes conservative representatives of other varieties of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. And, you know, an obvious point, but I think one that we need to repeat is that Christian national is not representative of American Christianity or evangelicalism as a whole. Um, and another thing that I think is really interesting is many people refer to it as white evangelicalism, and I think that's um, a little bit um, wrong because I met many, uh, I think there's a large part of the movement that is focused on um, including conservative pastors of color and through them trying to message to their congregants the so-called correct way to vote. Um, Ralph Reed, who, as you know, is a um, founder of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, or head of Faith and Freedom Coalition, um, 
correctly says it's not whites that voted for Trump as much as evangelicals and other <laughs> representatives of conservative uh, religion. He said, if you back the evangelical vote out of the election, Trump loses with whites. So he's correct that the election was very much about religion, but he is papering over a fundamental connection between racism and this sector of white evangelicalism. Um, uh, but I, I did find in my book, and, and I report on this at length, the extent to which uh, movement leaders try to draw in um, pastors of color. Um, I went to this uh, event in Chula Vista, California, where dozens of Latino pastors were um, being uh, an event was held for them to try to communicate the, the correct way that they should vote and that they should, um, the, I'm sorry, the correct way that they should communicate to their congregants um, uh, to vote. Uh, they were told, you know, when you're asked about the minimum wage, you should say, you know, what's more important, you know, talking about the minimum wage or, or about life, you know, life meaning abortion. Right. This is something that I that I've heard a lot in in the literature, which is that the political allegiance, which for a long time we might have characterized as white evangelical plus conservative Catholic, mm -hmm. right, as the major coalition, mm -hmm. it is now recognizing that demographically there is fewer and fewer opportunities to take advantage of that politically. Mm -hmm. because of the declining birth rates and numbers of white evangelicals mm -hmm. and along with uh, declining numbers of Catholics and that a new coalition of more diverse but conservatively social um, actors is going to be called for. And so I think mm -hmm. that's that's one of the concessions that we're really seeing that that a movement that is undoubtedly the modern Christian right move is absolutely traces its origin to segregation mm -hmm. that that movement today needs people of color and more diverse participants in order to survive. That's right. I mean, leaders of the movement can see the demographic features clearly as you or I can, and they understand that the electoral future of the movement is not ethnically homogenous. So, you know, they are making a significant outreach to Latino and black pastors, but there is an irony that they're, those pastors are being enlisted to fight the culture war that drives support for a politically, political party that um, relies on race-based gerrymandering and voter suppre suppression in order to, to build its movement. It's also, interestingly, a shifting between the lines of insider and outsider pure and impure. I think if you look at the segregation era and even further back at slavery, there was this idea that, um, you know, the, the lines of pure and impure and outsider versus insider were defined in, in, in some areas by race. But now that's sort of, I think the movement is really eager to um, try to inoculate itself against charges of racism. So they've right. just kind of shifted those lines the lines between outsider and insider, pure and impure, are, are now based in you know religious belonging. Right. So, and I think you know many voters of color they try to assure them that they too can be insiders as long as they vote correctly. 
um, you know, when I was writing my book, I interviewed uh, Brad Onishi, who you know, mm -hmm. and he said something so smart. He said, you know, membership in the movement is no longer based, I'm paraphrasing here a bit, apologies, Brad, if I get it wrong, he said membership in the movement is no longer really based on race anymore. It's not even based on religion. Your your membership in the movement is now based on your on your political beliefs or you know, mm -hmm. politi political habits. He His podcast, uh, Straight White American Jesus, we spoke with him in the fall. That episode came out um, in right around Thanksgiving. And, and he's been a very clear advocate of the idea that um, the political litmus test for religious persons defines this new mo moment. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, that, that, and that that test is fundamentally abortion, number one, and number two, um, and perhaps significantly less down on the hierarchy on the um, array of um, marriage and homosexuality and LBGTQ uh, plus issues. And, and he's tracking that the emerging issue for a lot of these things is trans rights, right? And we can yeah. see the expression of that in, in bathroom laws right. uh, in schools. But it's interesting. I want to bring this back to an earlier time in history sure. and talk about someone like James Henry Thornwell. He was one of mm. the pro-slavery theologians that were um, of the era. And he was speaking of the conflict between abolition, uh, the abolitionists and um, pro-slavery theologians. And he wrote, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists, red republicans, Jacobins on the one side, and the friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. And the friends of order and regulated freedom in his mind are the, the slavers, the enslavers. So if you think about what this encapsulates in, you know, they, they saw that they, they believed that this was a, abolitionists were waging um, what what uh, uh, Robert Louis Dabney called an, a hurricane of anti-Christian attack. Theirs was an idea of um, America as a sort of redeemer nature, a, a redeemer nation um, rooted in hierarchies that are ordained by God. And they, um, uh, this is a kind of, idea of America, an idea about religion, an idea about the importance of what they call biblical hierarchies that I think we can see carrying through to today. Yeah, absolutely. What's what's striking about this for me right now, and and it, I have to tell you this because uh, it's literally the lesson plan for tomorrow in the class that I'm <laughs> teaching right now is that we're working with um, uh, a textbook by Bruce Feiler called America's Prophet, How the Story of Moses um, Changed America. And one of his main kind of arguments is that there's this cyclical narrative uh, of reliance on Moses. And so to pair with that, one of the main texts that we're using as a critical theory text is um, by Richard T. Hughes called uh, Myths America Lives By. And you've said several of the myths already, the myth of the Redeemer Nation, the myth of the chosen 
people. Uh, these are the landmark ideas, these myths. They're the myths that give us the American greed, that that build up American exceptionalism. And, and I think what your book is pointing to and what our conversation is suggesting is that those myths cycle in and out. They transform over time, but they, they still have such a, a tremendous power to motivate uh, the way that we think about what America should be, who counts as American, and what we all think this country that that we're living in is is about. Hmm. Yeah, I think that vision of a civic order rooted in hierarchy, deriving its legitimacy from its claim to represent an authentically Christian nation is really at the heart of the modern Christian nationalist movement. Hmm. Um, But you know, it's uh, we have to remember that um, Christian nationalists uh, and their supporters um, are really a minority in our country. They just punch above their political weight because they are so organized, um, networked. They vote in disproportionate numbers. I believe it was again Ralph Reed who one of this. I saw him speak at one of these conferences. He said. It doesn't matter what percentage of the population you are. All that matters is show who shows up on election day. That's right. all that matters. So they're so focused on getting out their folks to vote, and they do it through all of these incredibly sophisticated tools. Now, I do think it makes sense to when you're talking about the movement to distinguish between the leaders and the followers, um, I think, Many of the folks who um, join the movement are um, believe they are they're voting for things like abortion and uh, in defense of what they think of as the traditional family. But it's the leaders of the movement who have actually sort of um, almost cultivated these issues uh, as a new form of religion, as a way of controlling their vote. They know if you can get people to vote on two or three issues, you can get their vote. And that's why they emphasize them so much. But um, the policies that they advocate are really not just about those culture war issues like same-sex marriage and abortion. Um, If you look at their positions on domestic, economic, and foreign policy, um, it hits home the fact that this is a political movement and not just a stance in the culture war. I think about someone like Ralph Drollinger, who I write about in Chapter 2, he um, uh, promotes uh, Bible study groups to the leaders of government. He, um, his Bible study uh, has been attest, uh, in, in, in the White House has been attended by at least 11 out of 15 members of Trump's cabinet, including mm-hmm. Mike Pence. You know, he targets political mm-hmm. leaders at the very top level. And he also has Bible study groups targeting the Senate and House of Representatives. So he is arguably the most politically influential pastor in America. And he's written a couple of books and he produces weekly Bible study lessons that you can actually find online. So he weighs in on a number of these social and economic policy questions. Um, I'll just give you one example. Um, He's, he said in one, this responsibility to meet the needs of the poor lie first with a husband and marriage, secondly with a family, and thirdly with a church. Again, nowhere does God command the institutions of government to support 
or commerce to fully support those with genuine needs. So he's making clear that social welfare programs, you know, as we understand them, where the aid goes directly, you know, through government agencies is, you know, is not okay. He'd prefer that the uh, aid, you know, he, he, he might even call them unbiblical. I don't have that uh, Bible study right. in front of me, but, um, you know, he's, he's basically pr- the, the policies he's promoting are um, uh, deregulation um, uh, sort of a compliant workforce, a lack of, um, you know, uh, basic workers' rights. Um, I think he's called um, the flat tax something like, you know, God's form of taxation. Um, and, you know, this is all music to the ears of the funders of the movement. Uh, many of the funders uh, are these um, members of plutocratic families, um, who have, I write about so many of them in my book, the DeVos and Prince families, uh, the Green family. And these very hyper-wealthy families rely on minimal workers' rights and economic and environmental deregulation to maintain and increase their profits. So the movement is promoted to the rank and file as being about these culture war issues. But um, when movement leaders are talking amongst themselves um, or to um, political leaders, the message is much more expansive. I think this this brings us back in a way to see Peter Wagner that we got to at the start. One of the things that that I learned in studying his work and in the preceding twenty years before he wrote um, Dominion is is the idea that social problems have spiritual solutions first and foremost. Right, that that any social ill, homelessness, poverty, uh, gang violence, drug use, that when we ask how should we solve that problem, the first answer, the primary answer, must always be a spiritual solution, and that and that they reject from the outset the idea that a government, a public service program, a secular entity should have the primary or the initial or the majority of the ability to respond to those. And this has been a major element of the new apostolic reformation for almost 40 years now, since the very beginning of that movement back in the, in the early eighties. And when you describe it, I'm really hearing you say that this is a, this is a structural approach. They, they look for the leaders at the top. This is something that they learned from Billy Graham in the 50s, that if you can get the ear of the president in the White House or the ear of the president's advisors, that that is an inroad for political progress, and that the grassroots side of it is less important than pushing your finger on the very few levers of power that will really change things in the law, change things in who gets elected, change things in terms of the motives of government and and the conversation we're having about what religion's role is in this. Is that how you feel that this is a a, a, a structural attack uh, that that privileges uh, spiritual solutions over political ones and spiritual answers to what are perceived as um, social problems. Well, perhaps I'm a bit 
you know, more cynical <laughs> in my view. Um, I don't see these as spiritual solutions. I think this movement is really all about building power. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's very interesting. They might promote, you know, couch it in terms of spiritual solutions. Again, I'm going to mangle this quote because I don't have it in front of me. But, um, you know, David Barton wrote, mm-hmm. uh, has a paper on, um, slavery and the I don't remember what the exact title of the paper but it's posted to his wall builders website but he's talking about sort of you know what did god have to say about slavery and how do we think about slavery now and he says something like um and again I'm mangling this quote I don't have it in front of me he says um something to the effect of um the state has today the state has replaced the role of the master. Um, the fact that people are relying on welfare, this is the gist of the, what he said, the rack people relying on welfare is tantamount to slavery. And then he said, the only solution to slavery is the liberty of the gospel. So basically what he's really advocating is, um, an ideology that's against, you know, the New Deal. I think reactions to the New Deal and um, uh, were a huge part of what forged the ideology of the movement at the moment. Um, and um, but they justify it by talking about it, you know, the spiritual solutions. But I, I see it as a little bit more um, instrumental than that. Right. So how would you draw the line then between religion and politics from a religious studies standpoint? And and you're a journalist, and I would consider myself on the academic side of things, however precariously at the mm-hmm. moment. Um, uh, one of the real challenges there is, is how would I choose one box versus the other box? So when you say that it's about power, I see power available in both of those boxes. So why for you is the political ideology the, the right box for it as opposed to religious creed, let's say? Well, I think there's a very big difference between coming at political issues from a certain uh, religious perspective or bringing a certain religious sensibility to political activism and trying to organize the political order around a certain um, particular understanding of Christian ideology. And that's what Christian nationalists are trying to do. They're not offering a Christian perspective on the healthcare issues. They're, they're trying to base all policy and all government on their reading of the Bible. Mm-hmm. The movement does not appear to have much respect for the two-party system or even representative democracy itself. But if if that comes from their religious perspective, why do we then assume that or argue that it's a political ideology instead? What what I wonder is the is the move that you're making in discourse pushing them out of what they might claim is a religious perspective and pushing it into the political box. It's it's not necessarily that I that I don't agree with that move. the The question is where's where's the the line? for it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it reminds me of um, what's happening in our politics today. When you look at a leader like Trump, and you ask yourself, you know, why do uh, Christian uh, nationalists um, go for somebody like Trump? I don't think it's just a purely transactional 
um, approach. I mean, yes, he's giving them everything that they want, not just in the courts, um, but also if you look at a lot of the folks that have been um, put in his cabinet, a lot of them have as their primary uh, qualification the fact that they adhere to a very particular extreme ideology. And frankly, they wouldn't be anywhere near the halls of power if they didn't adhere to that ideology and also that they didn't um, uh, express their loyalty to Trump. You know, he purges people as soon as they uh, step out of line. But I actually think there's something in his form of governance that appeals to a movement that doesn't believe in representative democracy, that doesn't believe in equality. Um, you know, they compare him to Cyrus. Uh, Paula White talks about, you know, it is God that raises up a king. Other uh, leaders like, like Ralph, Ralph Drollinger talk about the importance of kings and kinging. Um, uh, I think David Barton has said of Trump, this is God's guy. And it, it really, I think, tips the hand of the movement. It shows that they are really about um, concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. Right. And and I, I'm thinking of the especially provocative uh, Netflix adaptation of just Charlotte's The, the Family, right, on, on mm-hmm. precisely that notion of, of king, king making. I'm, I'm, I still want to press you j- just a little bit more here as, as we get to the end uh, of our time together uh, about the ways in which if we are seeing Cyrus as the model for political leadership that is an intersection with religious leadership, why, from your perspective, we would place that on the political side rather than the religious side? He was a monarch. He is a figure from the Bible. They are reading about him in a Bible study. They are organizing their metaphors around placing him within a biblical lineage that understands biblical forms. So I totally buy the argument that this seems fundamentally incongruous with many other presentations of American democracy, but I'm but I'm not totally sold that we can frame this exclusively or even primarily as political rather than religious. When if the primary model for who Trump is being um, compared with is is Cyrus, well, it's it's really interesting because um, I, sometimes I look at it in the context of um, other forms of religious nationalism around the the world. So um, in the book, I talk about how I attended the 2019 World Congress of Families, which is held mm-hmm. in Verona. And I was struck by the extent to which this is a globe-spanning movement. Now, there are, of course, nuances specific to different countries, um, but each defines itself against a common enemy, which they call global liber- liberalism. And the right. values of the Enlightenment um, and you can call that religious or spiritual if you like, but it's a political movement. Um, you know, I'm also constantly impressed with the sophistication of its political machinery. At the uh, 2019 Road to Majority Conference, mm-hmm. uh, Ralph Reed declared that the organization would invest $50 million in get-out-the-vote efforts in 2020 with a special focus on swing states and Latino voters of faith. He said the effort was going to include 
you know, 500 paid staff and thousands of volunteers. So they're really in, engaged in in the political machinery. Um, if you look at the data strategy, have the use of data tools they have. It's it's very sophisticated. I think that um, people who are not members of the movement consistently underestimate the political sophistication of the movement, the determination, um, the importance of their international alliances, um, and uh, and 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 the all of the factors that make them a formidable threat to our democracy today. Absolutely. Well, I'm so thankful for your time today. And I really do encourage folks who are interested in what we've been talking about and and taking a deep dive into the many different ways that you describe um what you what you label um, religious nationalism, how this appears in the U.S. right now, from education to uh, government to um, businesses, it, it really is a very expansive look at at the the many different areas of this. And I'm so thankful for your your time uh, oh, with I'm, us today. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, Dave. I found that really, really interesting. It's so interesting to hear from from Catherine, who is coming more from that journalistic side. And what's interesting to me is she really sort of almost raises an alarm there. And the fact that it's Super Tuesday tomorrow, I think, is obviously um, quite relevant. Um, so, how are you feeling about that, considering where you guys actually are right now? Yeah, the U.S. is about to to vote um, on the Democratic primary. The Republican primary has pretty much been secured by Donald Trump. There was a a, a primary challenger, and I think he he got one uh, percent. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. And, yeah, uh, Bill Bill Weld, I think. Uh, and uh, so the way that the U.S. does this is that there's a kind of massive group of uh, 16 states that all vote uh, tomorrow in the Democratic primary. And it's been a really challenging race. One of the things that we've seen that's really interesting is that the political candidates on the left who have serious religious bona fides, and so these are people that mention religion a lot, that for whom religion is an important area of their life and and an important um, moral compass for them. And this includes Pete Buttigieg. Um, this includes, uh, before he dropped out, Cory Booker, includes Elizabeth Warren, includes, in fact, from the previous campaign, uh, Hillary Clinton. And I think there's a really interesting thing that is related to what I talked with Catherine Stewart about, that there, there's a perception about the left that it can't or doesn't or won't talk about religion, and and that when we see them, and I see we, I mean kind of generally the the media, when when these candidates are seen speaking about religion, they often get delegitimated. Oh, they're not really religious. Oh, that's not really them being Christian. Oh, that's not. Uh, them following through on on the religious beliefs, and so there's a uh, double speak that often happens about authenticity and about who gets legitimated and who's religious 
orientation really um, is permitted to be public facing. And one of the things that's really changed in this particular Democratic primary, thanks to the really large field that we had, is that religion got to play a much larger role um, for the for the Democrats than it was able to play in some previous moments, even. Uh, for Barack Obama, uh, who talked about religion considerably and gave some really important speeches talking about his views on on the separation of church and state, that those issues remain, uh, when, when they're not liminal, when they're not just below the surface uh, and they bubble up, uh, everyone kind of stands up and takes notice of them. And, and so we've been seeing a lot of articles talking about how that works because in the US the the right side of the political spectrum um, the Republican Party is so unanimously aligned with evangelicals and conservative Christians in the US and so there's just at this particular political moment a very clear divide between those two sides and I know that that for Europeans and Australians that that, that may be really hard to understand and, and in fact as an Americanist who works in the modern period and works on politics and religion it's just really hard uh it's a challenging moment to try to negotiate all of these things even when um you spend most of your time thinking about it it's it's not easy well i definitely as an australian am finding your commentary on this sort of thing really helpful because i feel like considering you know the international power of america whatever's going to happen to that in the future who knows but it's all over our media at the moment and not being immersed in it, sometimes it's very difficult to sort of understand the ins and outs of what role religion is playing. Um, these concepts of primaries and all that sort of thing is, you know, it's so different to our political system and the role religion plays in that is something that I don't think our media really actually covers at all. So I hope it's a conversation we can keep having as, you know, the months roll by or as the years roll by. Politics aren't going anywhere. Um, but... David, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, we have the second half of David G. Robertson's interview with Tim Fitzgerald. We're celebrating 20 years um, since the publication of The Ideology of Religious Studies, which is Timothy Fitzgerald's seminal work from the critical theory of religion side. And the second half of that interview, Empty Signs in an Automatic signaling system uh, is related to some of Tim's newer work that he's been trying to think about how uh, the category of religion really operates and some of the ways that that um, we can really think about the work that it's doing. And so we're really pleased to bring the second half of that next week. And uh, as well, a response by uh, Russell McCutcheon, whose work on this is uh, really uh, valuable as well and really essential to the kind of critical theory. And these two folks have really given us such a, a wonderful set of, of items to work about. And so we're really pleased to kind of be able to share Tim's work and then uh, to have Russell's thoughts about about it in, in reply uh, coming on Friday of uh, that week. And so until then, I think the only thing that's left for us to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC0. 
47750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>